Welcome to the NSCA Coaching Podcast, Season 6, Episode 5. So the thing is, is we've got to kind of make sure that they have this appeal to coaches because they've only got two to three minutes to look at a paper. They're not going to read an entire methodology section or results or discussion. So how can we how can we make sure our results jump off the page, key points given to them in two to three sentences, and then that's how we make our real impact. This is the NSCA's Coaching Podcast, where we talk to strength and conditioning coaches about what you really need to know, but probably didn't learn in school. There's strength and conditioning, and then there's everything else. Welcome to the NSCA Coaching Podcast. I'm Eric McMahon. Today, we're joined by Dr. Jonathan Weekly, a faculty member at Australian Catholic University in Brisbane, Australia, and Leeds Beckett University in the UK. Jono, welcome. Hey, good to be here, man. Thanks for having me on, mate. Yeah, no, excited. Always great catching up with you and uh, just an opportunity for you today to tell your story in the profession and just how you guys started with strength and conditioning. Yeah, for sure. Was, uh, yeah, so originally I'm from uh, uh, Aotearoa, so, or what we'd call in English uh, New Zealand. So I was from Christchurch, New Zealand growing up. And then uh, I was always... Um, always hugely, hugely fascinated by sports science. Um, I even looked at some of my old training programs the other day, which I wrote when I was nine years old. And it was kind of something which was already, sorry, always in me. You know, it was something I always loved. And then I always wanted to be a sports nutritionist. So I went down to the University of Otago and I did sports nutrition. Um, Around that time, I then uh, finished that and then went over to the University of Wollongong and did dietetics. And then at the same time, I, I also thought I could, uh, you know, stretch my legs a little bit. And when I was doing my master's of dietetics at University of Wollongong, I also enrolled in strength and conditioning uh, at Edith Cowan University. And I was doing a master's there at the same time. So I was kind of balancing the two master's degrees at two different universities. And um it was a pretty real, like, humbling realization at that point when I, I realized that I loved dietetics, but strength and conditioning was kind of my calling. It, it was something that I, I was good at. Um, I understood intrinsically, and it was probably actually my biggest passion. And so I kind of made the leap from nutrition and dietetics into S&C, um, which I'm very grateful for because without Without nutrition, you kind of don't have the building blocks to develop strength, muscle, and power. Um, and then I was very, very grateful. I look back on this with um, you know, a lot of gratitude to then go over to Leeds Beckett University and work with uh, Ben Jones and Kevin Till uh, and work alongside the England Rugby Union and work alongside uh, Yorkshire Carnegie, which is a rugby club there, and Leeds Rhinos Rugby League Club. And for those, uh, for those years, I did my PhD as well as being an applied uh, applied practitioner so we kind of balance the the research and and the coaching which i think in many ways is how most phds should work because all your research needs to be both interesting and useful to the practitioner and then after that i did my um i did my postdoc and some of postdoctoral fellowship which was with leeds beckett um and working alongside the rugby union teams over in the uk and then after that i kind of I realized I missed the sun, I missed home, and I went back to the South Pacific and ended up at Australian Catholic University here in Brisbane, where I now teach uh, strength and conditioning, but primarily a lot of my time is spent uh, supervising research students and uh, 
just trying to do the best applied research I possibly can. So yeah, that's, that's me, man, in a nutshell. That's great. You know, and on this podcast, we talk to a lot of coaches at various career stages and a couple of things I, I really like connecting with professionals, researchers, coaches, uh, in Australia, in the UK, or who bring an international or global perspective to the field. But another thing, you know, just when we do speak to researchers, I think it's really great to connect on research areas that are really relevant to the practitioner. And that's something mm -hmm. when I've read your papers, when I've read your research, it's really connected with me personally, as a, as a coach, as a as a professional working with athletes in the field. And I think that's a goal for this episode is to really bring some of that to life in your research areas uh, in the way that they impact coaching on the ground level. So I want to give you a chance, talk about your research focus, some of the areas that you've worked on and, and published. Yeah. yeah cheer, cheers, Eric, mate. I um, appreciate that. It's like, so pri primarily my research is based around uh developing strength power muscle hypertrophy for athletes but probably on a higher level than that it's about making the biggest impact for coaches possible and i think in reality you know in, in academia we have this concept that we need to you know make everything really super complicated and and often we make things complicated for complicated sake but but there's no need for that in academia and i, I genuinely believe that we can we can make papers or research really really useful for coaches and really really useful for uh, researchers as well and i think the actual skill as an academic is to be able to bridge that gap between research and practice so for for example when we when i write a paper i kind of go okay what's what's this paper you know is it is this interesting for a researcher and is this interesting for a coach and is it useful for a coach and then and then saying if it is these both these things, we're going to proceed. And my research group, we're going to go do this research. And if not, hey, shelve it. It's not worth our time because we need to make sure that what we're doing in the lab and the on the field or wherever is going to make real impact for our coaches and make their lives easier. And that often starts with a sit down, a coffee with a coach, asking what's troubling them, what's an issue with them, what's what's a problem that they see in practice and how we can fix it. So yeah, mate. I think that's I think that's probably like the premise of my research fundamentally, and then I'm probably on building on that. It's then how you present it. You know, if you're going to do your research, you kind of got to almost nowadays in in the age of technology and cell phones and infographics, you kind of almost got to make your papers infographic key. So the thing is, is we've got to kind of make sure that they have this appeal to coaches because they've only got two to three minutes to look at a paper. They're not going to read. An entire methodology section or results or discussion. So how can we how can we make sure our results jump off the page, key points given to them in two to three sentences, and then that's how we make our real impact. So yeah, mate, it's um that's that's the general concept behind my research, and um, hopefully that feeds into all our strength, power, programming, auto regulation, rugby. It doesn't matter. It's all it's all the same. So um. Yeah, but that's kind of how I, I approach my research and with uh, the practitioner in mind. Yeah, on the area of autoregulation, a paper that we used for our RSCC coaching renewal course in 20, uh, 2020 
was the velocity-based training from theory to application article. And, uh, it, I remember it came out ahead of print. It was, uh, really a great paper that I, I saw online first and has since been published in the, the journal. And, uh, I'm a little bit of a VBT nerd myself. So I, I really enjoy, uh, diving into that, but, you know, just some of the names on that paper that I know, uh, Brian Mann helped you on that. And just a lot of the high profile VBT researchers, uh, really contributed. And I thought that really shaped a new area in the field, so to speak, VBT, uh, in a context along a, along a continuum. And I want to give you a chance to just share, you know, what that paper was for you, how it came to life and just some of the response yeah. that you've gotten from that. Yeah. First of all, VBT is, um, VBT is an interesting one because it's so hard to argue against numbers. You know what I mean? Like, you know, physics is physics. And the thing is, is that velocity is velocity, force is force and power is power. And, you know, I think fundamentally, fundamentally, it's very, very hard to argue against logic, uh, although people do their best at times. Um, and I, I think fundamentally VBT is based in physics and the concept that, hey, you know, a bar's traveling at a certain speed. And I remember sitting at, I remember sitting at work and thinking about all the athletes I was working with and all my athletes who would be at the end of the week having very, very differing kind of fatigue profiles. And they were completing vastly different repetition ranges and all those sorts of things. And I thought to myself, man, there's got to be a better answer to the traditional prescription. You know, we, we often with traditional prescriptive methods, so percentage-based training, we, we test them in week one. And then six weeks later, we're still programming off those values even four weeks later, even the next day, we're programming, programming off those values. And I thought to myself, this is, this doesn't make sense because we're totally neglecting that athletes change over time and that fatigue profiles change over time. And I was even just seeing it in my athletes day to day, you know, one person, we might have six athletes and they all do six reps, but they have very, very different fatigue responses. So I just started to think, man, there's, there's a better way to program here. And I started to kind of delve into the literature and I saw this, saw this kind of uh, method of VBT where they were applying thresholds to cut off fatigue. And I just thought this just makes sense. This just this is so this is so sensible in our you know for our profession. So we started to delve into it. And then I also saw that everyone had a different perspective of what VBT was. You know, you looked in the 90s and people were saying oh VBT was monitoring barbells. Then in the early 2010s, uh, we saw out of New Zealand that people were providing feedback. And then all of a sudden, in 2015, people were providing, providing relative thresholds of velocity loss. And I started to think, man, like we need to kind of come to a consensus of what VBT was. So that's how we started to kind of, I started to put my head down and started to think, okay, here is some of the key practitioners and researchers from around the world. Under, they have all have great understandings of their own respective areas. If we can kind of come together, develop a consensus on what VBT is, and then also detail all the different ways that VBT is used with a little bit of science underpinning it, but really hammering home for the coach what it is and how it can be used. You know, it was, um, it, you know, this is the best thing for the profession. And I, and I should note, you know, if we're talking about actual impact of research, 
that paper in 2020 when it first came out, even though it came out, I think in May, was the most read research paper in the entire 2020 in sports science and sports medicine. And that's in Strength and Conditioning Journal. You know, so forget about impact factors, forget about all that sort of stuff. That, that one paper was the most read paper in the entire year. So, you know, we're, that was a hugely impactful paper and it just kind of emphasizes how, um, how important it was for the profession in general, I think. On the VBT topic, it can be broken down, obviously, into the technology side of it, yeah. the physiology side of it, and then also the, the feedback. And I guess that can yeah. tie into more of the psychological aspects. And I think of a paper yeah. that you had in the JSCR in 2018, Show Me, Tell Me, Encourage Me, which was really yeah. a feedback piece that, to me, connects with what you're saying, you know, the feedback we get in from velocity-based training validates what we're doing as coaches. It mm. validates mm. to the athlete that I performed uh, more effectively. I did better because I can move this weight faster than I did last time. I can adjust mm. the rest of my workout on mm. that. And I really like that auto-regulation concept. I think there's so many things in the field right now that have taken us maybe out of that, out of that mindset of traditional mm. block periodization. And we've seen that evolution over, over a number of years. I think uh, just the natural demands of professional sport, uh, yeah. all of the different, uh, even tactical strength and conditioning, where there really is no peaking for competition. You always have to mm. be ready. There's, there's so many, uh, there, there's so much advancement in conversation in that area. And I think this is one uh, topic around regulation that's really, really valuable, important. Definitely. And I, th I think, I think, um, like, well, when we have VBT, kind of the, the, the concept of feedback is really the first step. But also feedback is also the first step of being a good coach, I think, as well. You know, talking to your athletes, understanding how they are, understanding how they're performing day to day. You know, we see coaches uh, prescribe weights and then say, okay, go do five sets of 10. And then at the end of the session, they go, oh, how was that? And that, that, that's, not, that's not coaching. That's just giving someone a piece of paper or giving someone a tablet. And I, I think um, how, how that feedback sort of stuff, and I'll be honest, the first paper I ever did on feedback was um, uh, a paper was v visual feedback attenuates, um, you know, velocity loss, and uh, during resistance training in adolescent athletes or something. And um, that, that paper set ahead of print in JSCR for a wee while, but that paper really hammered home to me the power of feedback. But where that question came from was from re some research in 2004 from Aaron Coots, and then I think 2011 from Dan Smart, um, where, they, where they showed that if you just provide supervision to your athletes, the improvements in strength and power are about two to five times greater than not providing supervision. So I was going, okay, if I can achieve, you know, strength improvements five times greater than not, then I should try and find a way to really harness that. But then I started thinking about why, why, why is, why are those strength improvements so much greater with supervision? And if I have, if I, I remember I used to coach 45 athletes at a time and I'd be the only, the only coach on the floor. And I'd be thinking, okay, there's no way I'm going to be able to coach 45 athletes all at once. 
So how can I make more Jonathan Weeklies so that they're getting feedback? So I'm coaching everyone, I'm touching upon everyone on every single platform and providing feedback. So they're optimizing their training. And then that's when I started thinking, hey, feedback, feedback is feedback is the key here. I can have conversations with athletes or about every single set because I can see the numbers in front of me. And then we so we started showing that, hey, when you provide feedback, performance improves by about seven, seven and a half percent per set which is a huge, huge markup. If you think about we train athletes for years just to improve them by 1%, to improve them by 7% instantaneously, just from, just, you know, first thing, we give them feedback, performance improves, unbelievable improvements. So then I started thinking, okay, hey, this stuff is really, really powerful, really, really powerful. And then I started doing, okay, what's the best way to provide feedback? Okay, is there an effect of visual versus verbal versus just encouraging them? And guess what? They're all the same. They all have on average the same outcome, but your athletes respond differently from to them. So you might have athlete A who really just loves to chuck the old headphones on and zone in on the numbers and look at them. You might have another athlete who's quite competitive and they get verbal feedback of the numbers and they go, oh, okay, hey, I got 0.8. What did you get? And they're going, okay, but I got 0.9. So that first athlete goes, okay, well, I'm going to try and beat 0.9. And then there's the other athletes, so the type C athletes. And they, they, they often are a bit more casual and laid back, and they require verbal encouragement. So, hey, good work, great job. You know, they might need the, you know, the coach to give them a rocket or put their arm around them. And that's when I started going, hey, we've got different athletes. They all require different types of feedback. But understanding your athletes and understanding how they respond to feedback, you can have monster adaptations and uh, training improvements. It's just phenomenal. And we also looked at the psychological elements, which looked at um, competitiveness and motivation and motivation for each athlete increased as well. So they weren't only getting better training uh, adaptations. They weren't, any, they weren't only just getting better training um, like acute training practice but they were more motivated to be at training they felt more cared for they felt more motivated and competitive with their training and that's a huge achievement that, that's 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 goal number one of being a coach isn't it so um yeah there, there was a bit of a story behind that and I realized actually probably from a coaching standpoint that's some of the most powerful things you can do just be providing feedback to your athletes absolutely and you know what popped in my head as you were saying that is, you know, technology as a force multiplier, you know, if you're the one coach in the room, you can have a bigger impact by having more feedback devices, essentially uh, helping you provide effective feedback uh, as a coach. Uh, I gave a presentation years ago. It was really my first real presentation at a conference and I presented on VBT and, you know, bringing together all the research and just some of the practical applications that I was doing uh, with my athletes. And that, you know, you get speaker feedback after, you, you know, you finish up and, and uh, one of the comments stuck with me uh, because it was so constructive was, you know, this was all great, but I just, I'm at a program, low budget. I don't have the resources to, invest in a $2,000 device or even a $500 device for my teams uh, or even my athletes uh, on an individual level. So it really opened my eyes to um, 
you know, connecting with, with your entire audience when you, when you're presenting, mm -hmm. but also that this is a feedback is the number one thing in coaching. You talked about supervision. Mm -hmm. All those things are part of the velocity-based training continuum. And whether you have the fanciest equipment or not, you can implement these principles regardless and effectively just by adapting your feedback around really intent. I think uh, it goes back mm. years ago, we used to talk about intent to move. And I think that's mm. such a, uh, a great concept that we're getting back to. Yeah, yeah definitely. And when, when we like the, the evidence is clear, when you train athletes with intent, you have different recruitment patterns. You know, you have higher power outputs, higher velocity outputs. You know, you're more likely to recruit those big type two fibers, which is something that I think all coaches want. And because of that, because of that intent, you also need a smaller training dose, you know, because you're recruiting those type two, you don't need to fatigue them just to recruit them. So you're recruiting them from the get-go. And mate, that's absolutely essential, absolutely essential. Um, so yeah, providing that feedback allows greater intent in our training, mate. And it's um, fundamentally probably the best thing we can do for our athletes. And it's also just fundamental good coaching as well. Just caring for your athletes. Hey, is that load good? How are you? How's that set feeling? And that's just being a good coach as well, mate. So um, yeah, it, it's while so simple, it's just so powerful. Agree, totally. And uh, I want to expand this a little bit to technology as a whole. Obviously, VBT is just one part of the technology equation. And in sports science, in strength and conditioning, we're seeing just so many advancements around technology. Coaches are having to process a lot of information about how they're going to implement new devices in their program. They're getting asked by their their supervisors, their athletic directors, hey, uh, this school's using this. Should we be using this? And we're having to really account for uh, and the, the why behind a lot of new technology areas. If you would share your perspective on just the current state of technology in the industry and just the recent advancements. Yeah, no, definitely, mate. It was, um, it's a really good question because if you've got, uh, I'm going to say this as politically correct as possible, but garbage technology, um, if you've got technology that doesn't accurately measure the barbell, barbell or the dumbbells or whatever you're using, then, you know, like you can't really trust your outcome, you know, the outcomes that you're receiving back. So, um, and I know not everything comes back to research, but fundamental evidence is, uh, you know, grounded in research. So I, that, was the, that was the most important question I got asked by coaches every single day. So I went away and I looked at the entire research field. I looked at all the research that has investigated the accuracy and reliability of devices. And I said, okay, you know, what's the best? What's, you know, what's, what's reigning supreme? And I ranked them all. And I published something in uh, Sports Medicine uh, in 2021 that looked at the validity and reliability of each single device. And as I said, ranked them and said, hey, this is when each device will be useful. But fundamentally, fundamentally, what we found was that linear position transducers or linear transducers in general, so the general theme of linear transducers, they're the, uh, they're the most accurate so they're the most valid device and they're also the most uh, reliable and they reproduce the most reliable numbers. Um, the reason for that is because they directly measure the barbell's displacement. So mo most, most devices uh, attempt to measure displacement. 
uh, well, sorry, all devices attempt to measure displacement. That's how they kind of, that's how they get velocity. But the thing is, is that some, some types of device, so accelerometers, they have to uh, do a couple of extra steps to get to displacement because they use acceleration rather than actually direct displacements, uh, sorry, direct measures of displacement. So linear transducers, so you, you know, the things like uh, gym aware, they strap onto the bar with a little tether and they directly measure the displacement that occurs when training. And therefore, because they have that direct measure of displacement, they're super, super accurate. They're, they're, they're research quality devices that coaches can use on the gym floor. And also they're very, very user-friendly. You know, they, they improve performance and they're, uh, you know, they're super, super accessible for coaches. Um, after that, we've got probably things like optic lasers, um, which is only one on the device, and uh, sorry, one on the market, and that's the Flex, which also comes from Gymaware. So uh, Gymaware and Kinetic Performance, those guys are absolutely crushing it. They're unbelievable, and they're and I think that fundamentally become comes from their owner Evan, uh, Evan Lawton, who's very very particular about accuracy of the devices. But then after that, you kind of got things like accelerometers, and accelerometers are pretty um, hit and miss. They're okay. They might be able to provide some accurate numbers, but then some of them aren't very accurate. And then also they miss a lot of the training volume uh, because they don't actually count the repetitions. So mate, I think what you're saying there is identifying the most, the best technology and using that best technology because without accurate technology, you're going to be, um, you're going to be struggling to get accurate feedback for your athletes. So yeah, so if it was up to me, mate, linear transducers every day, all day, you know, Jim Aware is the Rolls Royce of VBT devices in many ways. So, um, yeah, I, I genuinely believe that the devices you use will dictate the success that you have with VBT. Oh, that's a good, that's a good point to, to bring in there. And, um, you know, I want to ask you a question I asked all of our international guests on the podcast, really, you know, coming from New Zealand, you spent a lot of time in Australia and in the UK. Uh, just about the current state of strength and conditioning internationally. What you've seen, uh, a lot. most of our listeners are here in North America. I think it's very insightful when we can expand our perspective just to understand what's going on in the, the rest of the world around us in terms of what makes up a quality strength and conditioning coach. What are some of the, the challenges you see with coaches and researchers in different parts of the world? And I'll let you share your thoughts on that. Man, this is a controversial question here, Eric. Like, I'm very fortunate to consult for teams from the Americas to the UK and Europe to Australasia. And I'm very, very fortunate. It's really interesting because coaches uh, all interact with their diff athletes differently. Um, so in the, the US, I see that coaches take a lot of pride in being called coach. You know, you know it might be Coach Jonathan. And for me, I'm just like, oh, bro, just call me Jono. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it's really, it's really different cultural elements. And there's also a bit more of a dictatorial style in the US. You know, hey, the coach is providing the training system to the athlete. And hey, this is what you're going to do. We're going to go and we're going to lift heavy. And it's quite interesting looking back into the uh, history of uh, strength and conditioning in the US and seeing there's such a big fascination with strength in the US and why that's come about. And that's come about from some of the practitioners and researchers that have come uh, from the US. 
Now, then, alternatively, in the UK, they've probably got probably a little bit more of a balanced approach in the sense that they um, they emphasise uh, different physical qualities to a different extent. They're probably also maybe a little bit more um, time pressed. They don't have the you know the big colleges like the NCAA where where they've got uh, where the athletes are kind of based at the school and they're living and dying for the school. Uh, but in the UK, they've kind of got the club system. And then they're also a bit more time pressed and they also play a, field, uh, a few more field sports like rugby union, which have a bigger aerobic emphasis. Um, in New Zealand, it's probably a bit more of a uh, uh, approach uh, where the, it's like colleagues between the coaches and the, and, the, and the athletes. You know, the athletes can quite comfortably come up to the coach and say, look, mate, I don't agree with this. How do we change this or how do we improve this? Um, and that, that's something that's just quite unique to New Zealand and, and Australia, to be fair. Um, so they've all got their own little flavors and they've all got their little own emphasis and they've all got their own different approach. But fundamentally, it's actually just how you communicate with your athletes. You know, in the US, you might say, oh, look, man, uh, you're from California. You know, I used to go to a meal out there. I mean, you can kind of break that. You know, sorry, I used to go to a restaurant and have meals out there and have family out there. And you can kind of relate to them like that. And then in the UK, you might go, oh, I'm from the north of England. So, uh, man, I can totally understand what that's like up there. It's cold and wet. You know, and in New Zealand, it's a bit more like, oh, kia ora, bro. How are you, my man? And uh, it's a bit more chilled out. <laughs> and, like, but I think fundamentally, like, you know, it's still just relating to the athlete at heart. Um, also understanding the emphasis that the different sports have and then also their prior held beliefs. So if you can understand those kind of three things, you know, but fundamentally how to break down, break it down and get, you know, heart to heart with the athlete, man, you're going to be fine no matter what, you know, I think at the heart of it, mate. And uh, at the end of the day, it's just get big, get strong, get powerful. You know, it's, uh, you know, it's just how you do it and how you communicate it to your athletes. I think it's fun to think about that. And uh, I, you know, I appreciate you just sharing because, I know us as coaches in one part of the world, we all have these perceptions and thoughts of how things are other places from what we see. And, and we don't always hear that coming from another part of the world. So I think it, it is really valuable just to hear your, your spin, your perspective on just what you've seen and heard. And, you know, one thing I'll, I'll make a little NSCA reference here is that the NSCA started in 1978 as a group of college coaches, essentially college football coaches that all came together to be more organized and united. Globally, we're all still doing that. We have a number of different governing bodies throughout the world trying to unite strength and conditioning and advance the profession. The NSCA is a global community now. Uh, you know, just the fact that we're on this podcast right now talking about it uh, really shows how much growth has happened. And just the fact that, you know, we have members from the ASCA come to our conference and present every, you know, it, it's been a little bit delayed with it, with the pandemic, but yeah. you know, we got to get back to that. And uh, it, it really is exciting just to see the global growth. And I think with the new direction NSCA uh, and I don't really want to call it a new direction, but just the the new focus on sports science with the NSCA, I yeah. think it's really uh, a powerful way to further unite the global mission of what we're trying to do in support of coaches. And uh, yeah. 
I want to let you kind of jump in on that. Just the sports science as a field uh, in different parts of the world and just, just how much growth you've seen in that area. Oh, mate, first of all, um, yeah, mate, the, the sports science between different countries, the difference and maybe uh, integration, understanding and uh, the emphasis on need of sports science is out of this world, eh? You know, I remember, I remember coming from, uh, when I first went to the UK, I just couldn't believe how seriously people took sports science. They were just, it was just next level. You know, we had some of the smartest people sitting around in a room all doing PhDs, investigating how we can track players or triangulate players positioning on a field better. And it just blew me away. Um, in the US, I, I remember, I, I genuinely, and I say this really respectfully, I, I think US uh, were world leaders in strength and conditioning for many years. And then they had a real big strength of emphasis. And then maybe from a sports science perspective, they maybe even fell behind some of the countries for a wee while. And then they started recruiting a lot of the, um, a lot of the best sports scientists from Australasia, from Europe. And they started bringing them into the, into the NCAA system. And, um, and the development in sports science in the US recently has been immense. I genuinely believe that. You look around the NCAA, you know, the NFL, you know, Major League Baseball and look at how many uh, heads of performance have come from other countries. Like, you know, even basketball, things like David Martin, who worked at the Australian Institute of Sport for 20 years, you know, you know, the 76ers grabbed him and said, look, tell us all the secrets, you know, and the, the development, the development in the US in sports science has been amazing recently. And it's really cool to see because they're starting to go, hey, you know, we've got all these great athletes, we've got all these major organizations, we've got the funds, hey, now let's take this to the new level. When you look at a country like probably like New Zealand, and they're very, very small, you know, th 4 million people. So, um, and I think per capita, they're kind of one of the maybe top three in the world for getting Olympic medals. And the thing is, I think early doors, they said, hey, we don't have the population to be able to compete with China, the US, you know, you know, even UK and all those sorts of countries. So they said, we need to be really good at sports science from the get go. And that's why people like Mike McGuigan, John Cronin, um, and and a, a AUT attracts so many good sports scientists. So New Zealand really pushed pushed the way with um, sports science in, in general, and they uh, they they really emphasise it from the get go. So it's been really interesting watching the development of sports science in each country, and then it's also cool to see at NSCA going, hey, it's not just lifting barbells and doing bench presses and squats and all those sorts of things. We need to make sure our coaches are not only great practitioners they have a solid understanding in sports science mate and it's it's a real hats off moment to you guys at the NSCA for um implementing you know the sports science kind of uh aspect of the uh certification so yeah well done man no I, we are excited about it it's a uh the certification is launched and more than that it, it's a curriculum it's a it's a textbook it's a it's a global knowledge base that really yeah is meant to unite and bring together the field. Um, John, I appreciate you taking the time today. I, there's been so much great research coming out of that part of the world for, for a number of years now. Uh, and you mentioned a number of the universities and institutions that have, have contributed. Uh, I just want to give our listeners an opportunity if they want to reach out to you, what's the best way to connect, whether that be social media or email? 
Yeah, definitely. I think um, social media is easy Twitter. So, you know, Jonathan Weekly without the Y and a one instead, because someone else must have taken Jonathan Weekly with a Y. Um, <laughs> that's the easiest and fastest way to get in contact with me. However, emails as well. You know, if, for example, if you want to get in touch about um, research or consulting or just, hey, you know, catch up over a, over a Zoom call, man, just just reach out over Twitter or email. And I'm, I'm always here for a chat. Um, on top of that, you know, probably the best thing about academia and sports science is the coaches, uh, sorry, is the conferences. And I'm just pumped to get out there to uh, Vegas in 2023. So um, if you see me wandering around or just get in touch, I love, I love hearing about how different, um, different programs are being run, about different experiences and how we can help. We genu I genuinely care about the profession. I genuinely care about helping individuals because our area is based on human interactions. It's not just barbell velocities and power outputs. It's how can we make the best, uh, how can we help each school or program or college or organization to be the best we can? So um, I genuinely wanna hear about how we can help and how we can improve it for you. But um, yeah, feel free, if you're interested in research in general, feel free to reach out and um, I'm sure we can help as well. So yeah, it's, it's been a pleasure, Eric. So thank you very much for taking the time, my brother. You got it. Uh, that was Dr. Jonathan Weekly coming to us from Brisbane, Australia. We're going to add a couple of the papers we referenced in this episode to the show notes. So if you, if you miss those or want to dive in a little bit deeper, you'll get access to those. Everyone listening in, thank you. And we'd also like to say thanks to Sorenex Exercise Equipment. We appreciate their support. Hi, coaches. I'm Leanne Blinn, the 2022 NSCA College Strength Conditioning Coach of the Year. You just listened to an episode of the NSCA Coaching Podcast. Thanks for tuning in to hear important conversations about the strength and conditioning profession. Don't miss an upcoming episode. Subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play, and comment on some of the highlights at NSCA's Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook. You can also hear full episodes on the NSCA's newest channel, NSCA.tv. This was the NSCA's Coaching Podcast. The National Strength and Conditioning Association was founded in 1978 by strength and conditioning coaches to share information, resources, and help advance the profession. Serving coaches for over 40 years, the NSCA is the trusted source for strength and conditioning professionals. Be sure to join us next time.